Uh, we are in a course on basic discipleship. These are just uh, rock-bottom truths that we need to know. They need to be a part of our life. They need to be so internalized that we can teach them to our children, to our grandchildren as we walk in the way, as we lie down, as we rise up. They are the essential doctrines of the Christian faith that every new believer and every mature believer who wants to know how to disciple someone else needs to understand. Let's go to our Father for help this evening. Now, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are great, that your gospel is true, that your victory will someday be seen over all the world. Though our nation is in turmoil, our world is on edge. We know that you promised us that difficult times would come at the end of the age. You told us not to be frightened, for these things must take place. But we are reminded that when you give a nation up to a depraved mind, things that are evil, they call good. Things that are good, they call evil. And we recognize that through it all, you will bring your son back from heaven. We pray this, morning, this evening as we are gathered here that you would help us in this week, that you would give us opportunities even between now and Sunday to reach out to someone who's lost, who's never met Christ, to care about their soul, to give them an invitation to come to our church, to give a word of testimony, and if you would open the door, the plan of salvation. We know that when we come to faith, you have called us to... Uh, be grounded in the faith, to long for the pure milk of the Word so that we can grow in respect to our salvation. So I pray for every dad, every granddad that's listening, parents, wherever they may be, whatever season of life they may be, teenagers who may be listening, even little children who are able to grasp so much of this truth. May the Spirit of God speak in these days. May He help me. May He minister through me tonight that I might lift up Jesus Christ. And my Father, I ask it in his holy and precious name. Amen. All right, as you can see, the handout this evening is back to the basics, a course on New Testament discipleship. And we are exploring the first topic. Usually a topic takes three to four weeks. And so typically the discovery class takes around 45 weeks. Sometimes it takes a year because of the number of questions that people uh, pause it on Sunday mornings. We offer it here every single week. You don't ever have to wait for week number one to begin. You can walk in any week that you want and uh, cycle all the way through the course, and I promise you'll get the critical foundation that you need. Now, some people may be at home and they're not really listening to me right now. They're playing on their phones. They're on their computers. and They need to be alert because these are critical truths that the devil does not want you to get. So as you can see, by way of review, we have six objectives. One is to distinguish between assurance and eternal security. Secondly, to understand the promises of Scripture as they relate to having assurance, to be able to state three New Testament evidences for a genuine conversion, to understand how salvation by grace becomes the motivation to a godly lifestyle, to understand the difference between those who simply profess Jesus as Lord but don't really possess him as Lord. And then we have two memory verses at the end of the handout. It gets longer uh, with each week, and by the time we come to the final 
week in this session, you'll have the entire handout. So right now, we are in Roman numeral one that we began last week. We didn't complete it because we gave a lot of time in the service to the reopening uh, next Sunday, but we are dealing with the provision of salvation. And again, here's the rationale that you're shooting for. You're discipling your son. He's 10 years old. He's received Christ. Maybe there's a Marine down at, 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 there on the base that you're trying to disciple, and you're meeting with him for that first appointment. Your goal, among other things, is to help them to see that we can be eternally secure and assured of salvation on the basis of a finished work. Neither would be possible if Christ's work did not totally, absolutely pay in full for our salvation. So we saw that while some Christians affirm assurance of salvation, they do not always affirm the doctrine of eternal security, and the New Testament weds them together. It's really in the 16th century, Joseph uh, Arminius comes up with the idea that a man could lose his salvation. Now, we'll meet that man in heaven. He knew Christ, but he was in gross error on this doctrine. Salvation is not something you can lose once you truly have it. And if you have it and you supposedly lost it, as we will see, you never really had it to begin with. But it starts with understanding the provision that Christ made. And so there are some critical passages that I think every Christian needs to virtually be able to walk a person through verse by verse by verse. So we only got as far as verse 8 last week, but let me bring you into the context of John chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, the Gospel of John, if you're a brand new Christian, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is the fourth book in the New Testament. It's pretty easy to find. Now, we're told there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he's a ruler of the Jews, which tells you that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was composed of both Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees had as their locus of power the temple. The Pharisees had as their locus of power the synagogue system. That's why as you read the Gospels, you typically see it's the Pharisees who are out in the community, out in the towns, places like Capernaum when Christ confronts them. Uh, they follow Christ around because that's their place of service and ministry. The Pharisees um, recognized the whole Old Testament, what they called the Tanakh, to be inspired, whereas the Sadducees only acknowledged the works of Moses being the first five books. So he's a ruler of the Jews. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, and he's certainly a leader amongst the Pharisees because he's coming as expressed in the first-person pronoun, uh, we. He's coming representing the Pharisees. This man came to Jesus by night. We don't know why he came by night. Many suggestions are given. They're speculation. Any one of them could be correct. We don't know, so we're not going to be guilty of eisegesis reading in the text and saying, well, here's why he came at night. Maybe a combination of all the reasons people gave that I went through last week could be argued. He came to him either case by night, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. So he recognizes that Jesus is a teacher. What he doesn't recognize is that he is God come to teach. He sees him only as a human, but he is respectful. The term rabbi was a term of respect. We know you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs 
these miracles, you could render it. There are three words for miracles in the New Testament, one that describes taras, the wonder of the miracle, one that describes dunamis, the power of a miracle, and this word, samion, the meaning of the miracle. There are really, in this gospel, seven miracles with a message, five that are unique to this gospel. But John selects seven, and with them, there's often a sermon and a really broad explanation as to the meaning behind the miracle. But he is convinced he's come from God. He recognized what Pharisees and Sadducees recognized in that day, that Satan could do miracles. But he's not attributing his miracles to Satan. Now, some of the Pharisees will before it's all over. They will commit the unforgivable sin, having rejected the testimony of God the Father, having rejected the testimony of God the Son. Some will reject the testimony of God the Spirit, their final witness, and they will say, what you are doing, Jesus, is done by Beelzebul, the chief demon, and they will attribute his miracles to the devil. But not Nicodemus. He has an open, searching, earnest heart. We know you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you are doing unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Three times over, in one way or another, he says our need is to be born again, both to see, and it's a word that largely deals with perception and understanding, because a natural man someone who's unregenerate, does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him, he can't appraise them because they're spiritually appraised. Asking a lost man sometimes to embrace spiritual truth is like asking a blind man to judge a piece of art or a a deaf man to uh, evaluate a music recital. He doesn't have the equipment to do it. So if you want to see and perceive what the kingdom is all about, and then he'll use another word if you want to enter it. You must be born again. Now, the word again is a Greek word that can be translated from above. In in three other times in the New American Standard, it's translated from above. And that's okay because it's a dual nuance. Uh, There's not really a single word that renders it. So whatever your Bible says again or from above is correct because both are true. It's speaking of a supernatural birth that God gives from heaven. So Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and can be, and be born, can he? He doesn't understand really what Jesus is speaking of. All he can think of is physical birth. It's impossible to be born a second time, Jesus. I don't get what you are saying. So Jesus answered, amen, amen, literally is what it says, amen, amen, truly, truly, verily, verily. In other words, what I'm about to say is really important, so don't miss it. When Jesus says amen, amen, truly, truly, he wants to get someone's attention. That's the way a Jewish teacher would do it. It'd be like our pounding the pulpit. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's your first birth, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we went through some things last time as to what it could not mean. It certainly cannot mean water baptism. 
because the gospel is the power of God to save. And Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, separating baptism from the gospel. The scripture describes in Matthew's account, baptism as a work of righteousness. And Paul will say that God saved us not on the basis of works done in righteousness. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Baptism has no place in saving you. It's something that's done after conversion. So we know what it doesn't mean, and I gave you a number of suggestions that people have posited as to what it can mean, and I can appreciate those, though I think the simplest way to take the text is since he is speaking of physical birth, Nicodemus, Jesus said, you can be born again. Your first birth is a physical birth, but I'm telling you, you need to be born physically and spiritually. You need to be born twice in order to enter the kingdom of God. If you ever want to see the inside of heaven, you must, you must, you must be born again. So sometimes people think of born-again Christians as, you know, these uh, super-duper, highly fanatical, you know, excited evangelical believers, like it's a different form of Christianity. And so we often put the term born again in front of Christian. Listen, if you're not born again, you're not a Christian. So the word Christian, we tend to prop it up in our day. But really, biblically, it needs no propping up. If someone said for you to be a member of this nation, you have to be born in this nation. You said, well, um, I had grandparents that were born in this nation. No, that won't make it. I, I speak the language of that nation. No, that won't make it. I, I dress like the people of that nation. No, that won't make it. I eat the foods that that nation eats. No, that won't make it. My children, who are 20 years younger from, than me, my wife was there, and two of them were born there. No, you have to be born in this nation if you're ever going to be allowed to live in it. And that's really the thought here. You must be born two times, physically and spiritually, if you're ever going to be a part, enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's your first birth. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's your second birth. Do not be amazed. Don't be blown away. You see, this was a, a, an outrageous statement to him because he was a member of the covenant people of God. I'm a Jew. Certainly God will receive me into his kingdom. No, Nicodemus, it doesn't matter. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, you may not fully understand how it transpires any more than you understand the wind, though you see its effects. So it is that someone who is born of the Spirit. Now, there's an interesting play here in verse 7. Do not be amazed that I said to you that you must be born again. Do not be amazed that I said to you. The first you is singular. He's pointing his finger, as it were, to Nicodemus. The second you is plural, you all, we would say, in the South. Now, that's one of the blessings of the old English that uh, 17th century English did that modern English does not. 
thee would be singular. So the King James would read something like, do not be amazed that I said to thee. Then the second word, ye, meaning you plural, must be born again. So by the way, if you don't read Greek and you're not sure whether a word is singular or plural, just pull out a King James or look it up on the computer and the the-ye relationship will show you. But remember, he's coming, we know. So he's saying, you, Nicodemus, and not just you, but all of the people that you have come to represent today, you all must be born again. So verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? So he's, he's moving here to, from the possibility to the process. How, how does it transpire? His heart is really open and tender here. And Jesus said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Now, some translations say, are you a teacher of Israel? But the article is present in the Greek New Testament in every manuscript. It's not a manuscript issue or anything like that. And that's important because it is really isolating this man as a teacher of teachers. He's not just a teacher, he's like the teacher. Are you the teacher in Israel? And you don't understand these things. He should have, but he didn't. So verse 11, amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, circle the pronouns we. We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony? Who is he referring to? No doubt the Old Testament prophets. And included in the Old Testament prophets, really the last of the Old Testament prophets was John the Baptist, who died before the new covenant was initiated. And so Jesus is speaking to the teacher of Israel who had given his life to pouring over the Scriptures. And he's reminding him, if you really poured over the Scriptures properly... You could not have missed this because the concept of a new birth, of being born from above, is a concept that runs in one way, shape, or form, either directly or indirectly through the prophets, both the minor and the major prophets, as we call them. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, they both speak of this new birth where God would forgive man, and then he would place his spirit within them. He would take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, and, and there would no longer be some select access to God. Everyone would have access to God, from the smallest to the greatest of them. It's the promise of the new covenant. It's what we will celebrate this Lord's Day as we have communion. That's what we're celebrating at the Lord's Supper the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant. And this is something that he should have grasped. And so, verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, if, if you can't understand basic, simple, earthly truths, how can I tell you things, Nicodemus, that are more involved and more intense? And it's really a humbling statement to this guy because he recognizes that Jesus is a, a teacher. He has come from God. He's doing miracles that are certainly uh, expressed with God's hand on it. And Jesus is basically telling him, you're just a baby in your understanding of things. And it was humbling, but that was a good humbling. 
Then in verse 13, he says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. No one's gone up to heaven and come back again to tell you what it's like, at least not at this point. Paul had a vision of heaven. He said, actually, I might have been there. I'm not sure if I was physically there or whether I was just there in spirit, and he wrote about it, but that's how real it was to him. John is given later on, some years later, about 60 years later, uh, the great revelation that the Apocalypsis, and there's a whole book called the Apocalypse, we call it Revelation. But up to this point in history, no one had ascended up into heaven and then come back from heaven to speak with authority. But Jesus did something that no one has ever done. He leaves heaven and he comes to earth. He is saying, I come with an authority that no one has ever seen or heard before. So he meets this man right where he's at. Remember, he's a teacher of Israel. The way he interfaces with Nicodemus, someone who's knowledgeable in the Scriptures, is far different from the way he would interface with, say, the woman at the well who is largely ignorant of the Scriptures. So in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now, if you're new to the Bible, and many taking this course online, you're new Christians, maybe you're as a father teaching these truths to your son, and you're taking this course together, and one of the things you want to help them to do is to get a working knowledge of Scripture. And by the way, this is why the computer Bibles will not help your children to really learn the Scriptures. I'm not saying there's not a place for them. But how are they going to find their way around the Bible? Now, if they just type in things, they're not going to still know where those books are. And they're not going to have a working knowledge when they're sitting down with their next-door neighbor or their friend in their college dorm or their high school classmate, and they can't pick up a Bible and find things because everything's computer-dependent. They're going to be lost. Jesus actually used a paper copy of the Bible. I hope you know that, for that's all they had. But when you come to this verse, you think, Moses... Now, I know some people, because the ignorance is so broad in our day, I've asked people that I've shared, do you know who Moses is? No, I don't. Do you have any idea when he lived? I don't have a clue. Look, I've had young Marines that meet the pastor who didn't know whether Adam ate the fruit. Not a clue. That's where we are in America today. So when you're helping a new believer... You've got to help them to find their way around the Bible. And that's why someone wanted to create slides for the discovery class. I said, absolutely not. I appreciate your servant's heart, but absolutely not. I want them to find the verses themselves, to look up those verses. So if you have a Bible with footnotes or marginal notes, the best marginal notes perhaps ever produced by a publisher. I'm not talking about a study Bible with commentary. I'm just talking about a raw text with marginal notes. The best I've ever seen, I've ever held in my hands, 
is the New American Standard. The marginal notes that the Lockman Foundation did were absolutely incredible. And they broke the verses down into sections like A, B, C, D, sometimes E and F. And they take a verse and you'll see these little letters like A and that tells you this is the A part of the verse. And then if you went out into the margin and you found verse 14 and the A part of the verse, it's gonna give you a cross-reference to Numbers chapter 21. And then they broke this verse also into a B and C section so that if there was a particular concept or word within that verse that you wanted to look at other verses with, and that's a good thing to do. As a confession of faith that they wrote at Westminster, it affirmed that not in these words, but in this concept, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So if you looked out into the margin, 14a, it says Numbers 21.9. So let's go to the book of Numbers. So again, if you're new to the Bible, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Go to the book of Numbers, and you want to go to chapter 21. Isn't it great that we have like chapter and verse divisions? You know, for the first thousand years of church history, there was no such thing. Of course, the primary edition of the Bible being used was the Latin Vulgate, but still it had no chapter and verse divisions. When Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth and they handed him the scroll of Isaiah the prophet, it's the thickest scroll of the whole Old Testament. And he knew what he wanted to preach, but he obviously knew that scroll well enough where he could feel his way to the section through the thickness of the scroll. Um, he obviously knew the Scriptures well. We've got a lot of cheat notes that are very helpful to us at this point in human history. Numbers chapter 21, and let's pick it up in its context in verse 4. Uh, this is, they've left Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and it says in verse 4, they set out from Mount Horeb by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and there's no water, and we loathe this miserable, you could render it bread or bread food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents, or you could say poisonous snakes, or snakes that bit like fire. That's the essence of the Hebrew. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. The result, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses. Why didn't they go directly to God? This is Old Covenant. Just select people had direct access to God. That's so different under the New Covenant where we are all called believer priests. You may not have a collar around your neck, but if you've met Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a priest, the Scripture affirms. We are a royal priesthood, not in this day. The people spoke against God, against Moses, We've brought, we, why have you brought us up out of the wilderness to die in this awful place? There's no food, no bread. So God sends the snakes. They come to Moses, verse 7. We've sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede or pray, you could render it, with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten 
when he looks at it, he will live. What a remarkable statement that God makes. Make a serpent in the likeness of the one that bit you and make it out of bronze. And I want you to take that bronze snake and I want you to set it high on a pole and it will, it will come about if anyone just looks at the bronze serpent, he will instantly live. So we see on the back of an ambulance a pole with a snake wrapped around it. Someone says, well, that's some Greek symbol. No, it's not. They stole it from us. It's like there's three, 265 flood stories. Where did they get those flood stories? From the original one. Where did they get the concept of the snake around a pole as a symbol of healing? From the original one. And of course, what God asked seemed rather stupid to some people. I mean, how do you solve the problem? Think about it. You've been bitten by a fiery, poisonous snake. The venom is going through your veins. People all around the camp, there's 2 million people. 600,000 men, Moses records. So conservatively, people say there's 2 to 2.5 million Jewish people who leave Egypt. And they're dropping like flies. God doesn't say, well, pray to the snake. He doesn't say, pass anti-serpent laws. He doesn't say, create a medicine. There was nothing these people could do. They were bankrupt, and unless God intervened, sooner or later, they would have all been bitten by snakes, and they would have died. And so Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on the pole. Why did he set it on a pole? Because God's heart is to redeem people. God's heart was not to uh, hide his solution, but to make it known. Put it on a pole. Why? So that anyone in the camp could see it. I'm sure there were people in their tents sick, and someone comes in, hey, I've got great news. God said to Moses, just, just look at the pole that, and there's a snake on the top of it like the one that bit us, and if you will look, you'll instantly be healed. And someone says, I've never heard of anything so stupid in my life. Why did you bother me with that? And the gospel, the Scripture says, is foolishness to those who are perishing, the promise was is that if it bit any man, he instantly lived. Now, Nicodemus probably was told that incredible story. That would have been one of those top childhood stories that every little Jewish boy would have been told by his dad. He knew it well. And so Jesus appeals to his knowledge of Scripture here back in John 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up that who, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So there's the analogy. As the serpent was lifted on the pole, Christ was lifted up. And this word for lifted up is used two other times by John and by Luke in the Acts to describe not just Christ being lifted up on a cross, but being lifted up and ascended into heaven. So it really pictures the verb that's used to describe his lifting up on the cross along with his resurrection and, yes, even his ascension. 
And so as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The parallel is clear. You're bankrupt. You've been bitten by a different snake. You have been bitten by the venom of sin. You are helpless. The wages of sin is death. Just like these people could do absolutely nothing but believe in God's provision, there's absolutely nothing we can do to earn or merit salvation but to believe God's provision. And that's the context, of course, of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, the next verse, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Why not? Because the world has already been found guilty. God doesn't warn people about getting on the broad way. They're already on the broad way that leads to destruction. The admonishment in Matthew 7 is to get off the broad way and to get on the narrow way that leads to life. God didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged, condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Some people think, well, way out there in the future, God is going to determine whether or not I'm guilty. No, he says you're already guilty. It's written across your forehead, condemned to use Paul's words in Ephesians 2, by nature we are children of wrath. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. That's what people love. They love darkness. If they're lost, they love the darkness. And when it gets dark at night, as Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, that's when people really celebrate the darkness. In the darkness, they do wicked things because that's what they are. By nature, they're fallen. Their heart is depraved. We all are by nature. And unless God rescues us from a birth from above, we're not getting better. We're getting worse. And when the church gets weak, the Bible is clear, the nation gets weaker and more sinful because the salt and the light of the church dissipates. As we move to the end of the age, God promised us that the church would be lukewarm and apathetic. That's the average Christian today. And many are not even Christians. Someone wrote me today from Israel, and they said, why are people lauding this man who was killed as a saint. This is a Jewish rabbi asking me this. And I said, we're all disgusted over how this man died. I don't know if he was a believer or not. His lifestyle has denied that he knew Jesus as Lord. I hope he did. You know, and I have to do a funeral sometimes, and, and I'm dealing with a person who's just lifestyle denied everything about being born again. I just hope. You know, God did give us one deathbed conversion in the Bible, one and only one, so that none would presume, but he did give us one so that none would despair. 
Now, that doesn't change the evil of what a police officer did. But, you know, our nation is being given over to a depraved mind, an upside-down mind. Let's get rid of the police. Are you kidding me? Don't we know what God has said in his word, that he's given army and police to to protect us from evil? No, police, and we got bedlam in the society. Oh, let's just defund them. So you dial 911. If you want a social worker while your wife's being raped, hit one. If you want a marriage counselor while you're in a big fight, hit two. If you want a police officer, hit three. I'm sorry we don't have any available police. We're so defunded, it might be one to two hours before someone can get there. Are you kidding me? Are we that nuts that we think we need to defund the police? And I think of these officers we have in our church who know and love Christ. I think of the Marines and the Navy personnel who know and love Christ, who are willing to sacrifice their lives to protect us. And we want to get rid of the authority that God has put over us. Why? Because man by nature is evil. We'll have sheer bedlam. But that's the way an upside down mind thinks. It thinks the opposite of the way God thinks. And so he reminds us that those who are born of the light, let their deeds be manifested in the light. Why? Because you produce the deeds of your father. And you are either of your father, the devil, John 8, or you've been born from above where you now have a heavenly Abba Father. In nature, of the nature of God in you will show itself, and we have become partakers of the divine nature. Listen, we need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for the people who hate black people. We need to pray for the black people who hate white people. And on and on it can go, but listen, it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. It's a problem of the fallen nature, and the only hope is not some new law. The only hope is to preach grace, and grace levels the ground. The root of all racism is I'm better than you are. That's the root of racism. It's an attitude, I am superior, I am better than you are. But grace shatters that attitude. It puts the ground level that none of us are better. And that's why in a church where the gospel is truly and consistently preached, you have integration, you have people black, white, if that's what's in the culture, and they love each other because they've had a birth from above. And without the birth from above, You will never enter the kingdom of God. I was down on Bay Street one night, and I invited a man to church. He was a white guy. He said, I'm never going to that church. I said, why not? He said, my mother taught me better. You don't go where people of different races are and worship with them. I said, you know what? By this we know we've been born from above, John says, that we pass out of darkness into light, that we love the brethren. And if the love of God is not in your heart for other people, you've never been born from above, my friend. And I said, and you will hate heaven. 
He said, what do you mean? Because heaven is 90% non-white. You won't like it. (laughs) He had never considered that. So we must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And that is the foundation for our assurance. Go to the book of Romans, the third chapter. Romans 3. Romans, the third chapter. Now, this is a much more detailed theological argument that Paul gives, but you can follow it, even if you're a brand new Christian. It's one of those things that you need to search and study and go over and over and over again. But if you do, it will come alive to you, and it will bring a freedom to your heart. In Romans 1, he has argued that we are justified not by works, but by faith, and to uh, let the reader know know that this was not some new Pauline doctrine. He quotes the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And then in the second half of Romans 1, he describes the depravity of man, of the Gentile nations. In chapter 2, he describes the fallenness of the moralizer, the upright person who lives outwardly a decent life, but he too is fallen in need of a Savior. In the second half of Romans uh, chapter 2, he deals with the Jew. And he says, it doesn't matter that you're religious. It doesn't matter that you've been circumcised. You too are a sinner. Then in chapter 3, he brings all of the culture together, and he begins in verse 10 by saying, there's none righteous, not even one, none who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of apse is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Oh, yeah, that's the Gentiles he's talking about. That's the way some Jews would have heard that. But then the next verse blasts them. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's the Jew. Hey, I'm not just speaking about pagan Gentiles. I'm speaking about everyone, Paul is reminding them. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Paul is saying that whatever the law says, that's basically a a descriptive term sometimes of just the Torah or the entire Old Testament. And it appears from his quotations of the Old Testament, he's using it in that fashion here. The Old Testament, the Tanakh, it speaks to the fact that each one of us is accountable to God. How so? Because by the works of the law, No flesh, no person, no individual will be justified, that is, declared righteous in his sight. How so? For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He is reminding these people in the church at Rome who are already saved people, but he's equipping them, he's deepening them. This book is not written, the book of Romans, to get lost people saved, though it will. It is written to people who are already saved to deepen their understanding of the gospel, to give them a strong polemic on how to share their faith, a gospel that Paul is not ashamed of because he recognizes it's the power of God for salvation. And he's just reminding us that the law was not given to justify, but the law was given to give us the knowledge of sin. In Romans 7, 7, just a page or two over in your Bible, Romans 7, 7, he says this, 
What then shall we say? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. Paul is saying, no, the law is not sinful. The law gives us a knowledge of sin. If God hadn't said, thou shall not steal, I wouldn't have been so acutely aware, aware of stealing. Now, Paul's use of the law is there's a double use. It's not only written on tablets of stone, it's also, as Romans 2, 15 indicates, written in the human heart. And so whether it's the law written in my heart or the law that I'm reading when I coveted someone's goods, and God's law said, you shall not covet, it made me all the more aware that I had violated his holy standard So the law was never given to justify, but to terrify. It's like looking in a mirror. When you look in a mirror, you see the dirt that's in your face. When you look into the mirror of God's word, you see the dirt that is on your soul that needs forgiveness. But it was never given to save a person because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Verse 21, but now apart from the law on a different basis, the righteousness of God. And by the way, the righteousness of God is a critical phrase to the book of Romans. And even in this paragraph, he uses it here in verse 21. He speaks again in verse 22 of the righteousness of God. Again, in verse 25, he speaks of his righteousness. Again, in verse 26 of his righteousness. The righteousness of God is a descriptive term to describe not only an attribute of God, not only an action of God, but a need that man has if he's going to enter into heaven. How good must you be to go to heaven? You must have the righteousness of God. And so the righteousness of God is God's righteous way for the Apostle Paul of taking an unrighteous, fallen, guilty person, all of us by nature, and making them righteous or holy in God's sight without ever violating who he is. And so he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been made known, being witnessed, by the law and the prophets. That is the law and the prophets, another descriptive term of the Old Testament. They teach that a man was never saved by his obedience to the Ten Commandments to any of the 613 ordinances of the Old Testament. The Old Testament teaches that a man was saved on the basis of grace and not by works. And to prove it, in the next chapter, Paul will go for two of Israel's most esteemed people, Abraham and David, and show that both of them were saved on the basis of grace apart from anything they had ever done. If you look at 4.1, just to look briefly at Abraham, what then shall we say, Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified, declared righteous, saved by works, then he has something to boast about but not before God. How so? For what does the Scripture say? And you will notice in the NASB, it's in all caps, reminding you it's an Old Testament quotation. You look out in the margin, you say, oh, that's Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was created to him as righteousness. God was unfolding the Abrahamic covenant. In chapter 12, he said, through you, all the nations, all the Gentiles, not just every person, every stripe will be blessed. 
and he begins to unfold it. And so one night he takes him outside of his tent. And he says, look up at the stars. I remember one night I was in the middle of Kansas with a couple of friends. We were driving to Bible school for a month and we went across the nation and we stopped about midnight and camped out in this field and we looked up and I'd never seen before or since so many stars in my life. It was just absolutely astounding. And Abraham looks up and God says, so shall your descendants be. Now, was he just believing that God was going to give him a lot of kids? No, not at all. That's a misrepresentation based on what Paul says in Galatians. He was reminding him, though his body was unable to this date to produce a child, he is going to bless him with a lineage from whom the Messiah will come in which all the nations of the world will be blessed. Why? Because this Messiah, God himself will provide a way of salvation. And so what does the text say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, by application to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due? You work hard at the end of the week, they give you your paycheck, that's not a favor. They don't say, hey, here's a gift. For, a gift? Man, I just put in 50 hours. You owe this to me, pal. Your wage is not credited to you as a favor, but what is due. But look at the contrast to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. The one God credits as righteous, is forgiven, is holy in his sight. One doesn't work and two, sees himself as ungodly. Then he goes through, gives the same kind of example with King David, two of Israel's biggest heroes. And that's what Paul's referring to here in, in 321, that this concept that the righteousness of God comes apart from any good works you do is witnessed by the Old Testament itself. Even, verse 22, the righteousness of God which comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, no distinction whatsoever. How so? For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the end of verse 22 is really linked to verse 23. And we often memorize verse 23 apart from the end of verse 22. But when he says here, there is no distinction, he's saying, look, when God looks down from heaven here at the human race, it doesn't matter whether you're the pagan idolater of chapter one. It doesn't matter if you're the respectable moralizer of the, in the first half of chapter two. It doesn't matter if you're the highly religious Jew at the end of two and into three. It doesn't matter who you are. There's no distinction, big sinner, small sinner, outright pagan, highly religious. We have all sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Now here it's the word hamatano, it's the verb. There's the uh, adjective and there's the noun. So whether it's the act, sin, the adjective, sinner, the verb, to sin, it means to miss the mark. And we've all missed the mark of God's righteousness. That's why we can't be saved by human effort because the righteousness you need is the righteousness God has and every one of us have missed it. So how are we justified? Being justified as a gift. Dorian, the American Standard Version 1901, like the King James reads, being justified freely. Uh, it's a word that means without a cause. Uh, the same uh, word is used later where Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. So God justifies you without any cause in yourself. 
without a cause, freely, as a gift, by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You've been bought with a price, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb, you've been redeemed. Being justified as a gift, we're justified. Now, the word justified is more than just as if you never sinned. It has more of a positive nuance to it, just as if you had always obeyed. And it's not a process, as Roman Catholics falsely teach, which is what the whole Protestant Reformation was over, but it was an act. It happened in a moment's time. You are declared righteous. God credits, he imputes to your account his righteousness freely, without a cause in yourself, without violating his own person, because he did it on the basis of the redemption, the payment that Jesus Christ made for you on your behalf, whom God, verse 25, displayed publicly as a propitiation. That's an important word. It appears four times in the New Testament. Halasterion. It means to appease anger. Now, we don't use it too often. I remember the speaker to the house years ago. I think he's dead now. He used the word, and I thought, well, that's a good theological word, and he used it properly. And they were running him out of town, and he said he was basically the propitiatory sacrifice. When you propitiated someone, you appeased their anger. Pagans, they propitiated their gods. Hurricane blows through Beaufort. They say, the God of hurricanes is mad. We better propitiate him. Make some kind of a sacrifice. And they did everything from giving their own children to offering some grain offering or some generous gift. And God says that Christ was displayed publicly as a propitiation now in his blood. So God was propitiated with blood. Whose blood? His blood, Christ's blood, sinless blood. God gave of himself in Christ to save us from himself in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. How so? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Do you understand what he's saying? You need to know this paragraph. You need to know it inside and out. You need to be able to explain it to someone. I've been with many a pagan in a situation that was evangelistic, and they didn't get the gospel. We went through this text and this text and this text, and faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, and by the time they were done, they were on their knees not because of me, but because of the power of God's word. But remember, while we are all beloved of God, we're not all approved of God. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed. God's spirit wants to use you through your study of scripture to be able to help people either to get saved or to help save people to grow. And so God gave of himself to save us from himself. That's the doctrine of propitiation. And it was a demonstration of his righteousness at the present time. Why? Because in times past, from Adam all the way to Christ, he passed over the sins previously committed. He was looking forward to the time when Jesus would leave heaven and become a man and die on a cross for us. Understand, people in the Old Testament were never saved by human merit. God has only had one way of salvation and it's through the cross. 
And this was a demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, the day Paul lived in, where Christ had died and been buried and raised so that he, God, could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Understand that God must be just. He can't just violate his righteous character and say, well, we'll let those criminals go free. A lot of people think God's just forgiving, and if you're just sorry, you say, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. Oh, he's so forgiving, he'll forgive you. No, God has to have a basis of forgiveness. And the basis by which God is propitiated, by which his anger is appeased, is his blood, the blood of Christ. Then he might be just and the justifier. You can't justify yourself. You are the justifiee. God is the justifier. So God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Now understand when the Bible speaks of faith in Christ, it's not saying you're saved by faith. Don't ever say you're saved by faith because you're not. You're saved by grace through faith. Faith is just the hand that grasps what Christ has done for you. For the demonstration I save his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So he concludes, where then is boasting? It's excluded. There is no boasting. On, by what kind of law? Now you will notice in the NESB, they, because it is the word for law, but it's used in a different context. It's in lowercase. Because in the context he's describing here are principle. In other words, on what principle? On what basis is boasting excluded? Of works? No, but by a law or principle of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Well, is God the God of Jews only? No. Is he the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised, the Jew by faith, and the uncircumcised, that was typically the Gentile through faith, is one. He has one way of salvation. So we don't nullify the law through faith. In fact, we establish it because this is what God teaches in the Old Testament, that you're never saved through obedience to the law, but by grace. All right, quickly, two more passages. Uh, we want to turn next on your handout, if you will notice, to uh, the book of Galatians chapter 2. So just turn over. After Romans, you'll go through First and Second Corinthians. You'll come to four short books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go everywhere preaching Christ, the great electric power company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 2, Paul has been arguing in the book of Galatians that justification is not by any human merit. Some had come into the church, they were called Judaizers, and they added to the complete plan of salvation. They didn't deny that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised. They just said that was not enough. And people do it today as well. Some in the Church of Christ, some in the Disciples of Christ denomination, where they make baptism, some in just liberal Protestant denominations. They don't always deny Christ outrightly, but they deny his death as being sufficient. So in verse 16, he says, well, look at verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. In other words, we're not pagan Gentile sinners. We are Jewish sinners. He's not denying that he's a sinner. Nevertheless, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified, not declared righteous, not saved by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified, saved by faith in Christ and not 
by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So he's making it very, very clear here that justification is on the basis of grace alone. And then in verse 21, I do not nullify, I do not cancel the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so the thrust of Galatians is he's writing to save people, but their problem was is that they got balled up on their sanctification. So he takes them back to how they were justified, and he's simply reminding them on the same basis they are sanctified, by grace through faith and not by human merit. Uh, Turn to Titus, the book of Titus. You go through the great electric power company, you come to all the T books in the Bible, which go from long to short. So you have 1 and 2 Thessalonians, shorter in name, Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy, and then Titus. We call it a pastoral epistle, Titus 3. And notice, if you will, verse 4, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. How? He saved us on the basis of grace, as He's going to remind us. He saved us the same way Paul has described it. He saved us by grace through faith. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified, saved by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have a great Savior, and his name is Jesus. And if you've never met him, I invite you to call upon him because the thrust of the Bible is God either saves you without a cause, freely, as a gift, all by himself on the basis of Christ's work, or he will never, ever save you at all. But if you will call upon him, you will have a birth from above, and you will begin to see, comprehend, and when Jesus comes back, you will enter his kingdom forever and ever and ever. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for your amazing, unspeakable grace shown to us in Christ Jesus, we who deserve nothing but wrath. We know that this is the message our nation needs, people who are in turmoil with no answer, with no hope. They need a Savior. They need a birth from above that would change everything. So help the church in this hour to be faithful to the gospel, not to compromise what you have said, but to be faithful and to proclaim without stutter or stammer the whole truth of the death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus saves, and we ask it in his holy name, amen.